welcome to the next edition of the InfoQ Podcast. As always, this podcast is just a part of the senior developer and architecture-focused content you can find at InfoQ.com. My name is Wes Rice, and I chair the International Software Conference QCon. The conference next visits the London area for the 11th annual QCon London this March. Today, we are joined by Neha Batra. Neha is a software engineer at Pivotal Labs. At Pivotal, she partners with engineers on adopting agile practices. In today's podcast, Neha discusses what it's like getting the chance to work with these teams. She discusses techniques and tricks for driving adoption of things like pair programming. And she discusses things like vulnerability-based trust. Finally, she wraps up with an organization she's a part of, Write, Speak, Code. Neha, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I mentioned a bit that you work for Pivotal in the introduction. Can you tell us a bit about what you're doing with Pivotal today? Yeah, I actually just finished up a almost six-month project with one of our clients. And um, we, in loose terms, kind of worked on a new sales tool in the solar industry. So super exciting. And um, it was like the end of like a very intense six-month period. So now I have like about a week off, maybe a few more weeks until I get on my next project. So I get the opportunity to put a lot of the stuff that I've been thinking about into writing around thought leadership and around developing our pivots. And I'll be um, probably coding a little bit too and pairing with some of the people on the beach. That's what we call it, the beach when you're not on a project. Very cool. So, okay. So you talked about um, a specific project. Can you give me an example of like what you do when you go out to companies and work with them? Yeah, actually one of the coolest parts is that the we don't go out to the companies very often. They come to us. Oh, wow. So we provide our, our work environment is kind of like a um, home away from home that insulates you from a lot of the, the stuff that's going on at your company. If like something's down, the site's down, or something's not working, uh, there's a tendency to act like the sky is falling and, um, and the house is on fire. And so by, by being able to remove that team and concentrate on this kind of like in our own, uh, war room or, you know, two benches very calmly work on our code, uh, we can remove them from that. And usually everything ends up being okay, unless it's an emergency. So they come to us. And what that looks like is if we work with another company, we will try to get one of their designers and one of their PMs. It depends on the project. And then we'll get, you know, one to, you know, one to four or five of their developers and we'll pair them one to one with ours so that we end up having this team anywhere from, I would say two, right? So two developers and that's it up to like 10 or 12 people and we work together and we do our standups every single day and um, have a, a pretty you know loud work environment because we're pairing and we're speaking out loud and constantly interrupting our PMs and designers for opinions and solutions and thoughts. But it's like a very interactive environment. That's really cool. So is it focused on spring? Is it focused on process? Is it focused? What, what's the... I guess what's the main goal of uh, somebody coming in to, to work with you guys? Their goals change. So a lot of people are trying to get technical expertise. So maybe we're working in a technology or a language that they're not familiar with. Um, maybe they've never made an iPhone app before. Um, so that's one goal. And a lot of the other goals are around agile. So how to get in, into that process, how to change the culture and transform their organization so that they're working more collaboratively. So I, I've seen a lot of pro, uh, projects fall into those two categories. 
But there has been some others too, just to do like a really clean refactor with some other people who uh, have seen a lot in other industries to bring that expertise in, things like that. Oh, so really cool. So it's not specifically about technology. It's more about the process, the workflow, and and kind of um, obviously the the ideas change and goals change, but it's more about the process and the workflow of joining you guys. Yeah, and uh, I think the easiest way to get evidence around that is that our the technologies we use and the languages we use is is pretty negotiable, but the process that we use is not like we use XP. We'll mutate it. Obviously we won't use exactly XP every single time, but we, we do pair programming. We do test driven development. We switch our pairs every single day. We do standups and IPMs and retros. So we, that process is what we've found we work best in, especially if we're enabling another team. Yeah, that's very cool. So at QCon San Francisco this past year, you talked about pair programming. Um, and some of the lessons, I think, that kind of directly relate to some of the work you're doing. So why pair programming? Why did you pick that particular topic of all the tenets of XP? I think that pair programming is one of the concepts that has a stronger gravitational pull. So not only to audiences, but actually within your process, if you start doing pair programming and you want to make it stick, you kind of end up pulling all of the other tenants with you. So all of a sudden, if you're pair programming with someone else and you don't do test-driven development, then it feels very weird. There's not a sense of direction. And so eventually, I feel like you start to adopt everything else. Yeah, that's very cool. So um, pair programming, gosh, I, I, I guess it was Kent Beck Unleashed is when I first read about, um, about uh, pair programming in, in XP. Uh, and that was... I, I can't even remember the date, early 2000s or something, maybe even before, but how has pair programming evolved and changed since the early 2000s to what what you call pair programming today at Pivotal? Has it changed? Is it still the same basic idea or how's it evolved? I would say that a lot of the basics are very much the same. Um, obviously with XP, we take it to this extreme to do it eight hours a day. So in order to make it eight hours a day, we've had to adopt a lot of other processes and a more simple way of working so that we have a very easy level to default to. So, you know, we have our little phrases that we use at work. We like, if we're working on code, we say red, green refactor for making sure that we agree on a test and make sure that there's no false positives, make it pass, and then make sure that we refactor it so that we don't accrue code debt, especially since we're not doing code reviews anymore. Um, I, I think that in a lot of cases, it's fundamentally the same, but it's had to be mutated or modified in order to last like, and be sustainable. Also, now we have remote pairing, so that's probably also changed. And... Um, we've been looking for more creative ways to be able to extend to different geographies. So, yeah. Yeah. So that, that's actually exactly where I was going to go because uh, we didn't have this degree of uh, remote pairing, <laughs> or at least the remote virtual communities that we had or, or teams that we had back then. So what um, do you need to be in the same geo? Do you need to be in the same building zip code to be able to do pairing? Is there, are there lessons you've learned that people might be able to pick up on? Yeah, I think that I personally prefer, I think we all prefer in person when it comes to getting something done. But as you become better and better at pair programming, uh, remote pairing shouldn't be 
as hard anymore because you're still speaking to someone. You're still looking at your screen. And so you're not really turning over and looking at the person very often. You miss out on context clues and uh, seeing how someone's reacting or whether they're slowing down. But you can hear that in their voice and you can be more explicit about it and talk about it with them. The one thing that I think that is lost in remote pairing is the conversation that comes about, especially if um, you have your PM and your designer there, right? So the minute you kind of have this question like, huh, I thought like the design was different or I wonder why they put this button there or do we need to use this button because we have a different button like, you know, on, on a different page and I'd love to just reuse that style. So we, we just literally call our designer over and have them talk. So in one of my past projects, we were doing remote pairing and they were the people that we were pairing with were missing out on this discussion because they can hear it, you know, peripherally through the microphone, but it's not like we're sitting there talking over our microphones and passing them back and forth. So one of the solutions that we came up with is getting a splitter and actually getting a second set of headphones uh, and, and microphone. And so when we would ask them a question, we'd have them also put on a headset and that way the three of us are having a conversation over the headset and so that they can be included in on the conversation. What other uh, tips and tricks have you learned, um, whether it's remote or in person, that have helped make uh, pair programming successful? For remote pairing, Screen Hero is, the, is like my favorite tool to use because you get these individual cursors that have names on them. So you have these individual cursors and when someone is trying to take over the keyboard, it becomes very apparent or at least the mouse. And so it feels less abrupt. So I love using Screen Hero um, for in person, especially if you're working with someone who's new, who's not familiar with the IDE that you're using or any of the shortcuts. There is a tool called Keycaster. I love using Keycaster, especially if I feel as though they're, I can only see half of their keystrokes, chances are they're using shortcuts. So it shows all your shortcuts in the bottom right corner or wherever you want to put it on the screen. So I love using that tool also. And I think that the last thing that I've grown to appreciate over the last year is the value and the importance of breaks. So I know this sounds counterintuitive, but we, we take about two breaks a day, so one in the morning and one after lunch in the afternoon. And I cannot count the number of issues it's mitigated by being able to just take a 15-minute or 20-minute break and come back and start fresh again. So I know that we want to squeeze as much productivity as we can into an eight-hour period, but I found that somehow this break recharges you and is, makes you have, gives you the will to keep on going forward at the same speed that you were going previously. Yeah. Yeah. I totally can. I can well imagine. We all know about pair programming. We've all heard about pair programming, but I, I know many developers, me included, who have had, um, I guess at least an initial hesitance to to jump on on the keyboard and pair up with somebody and and whether that's subconsciously i'm not as good as that person or or maybe they're not as good as as me or whatever is in the head or or just i don't want to show my dirty laundry before before, uh, we're ready from developer to developer what are some of the strategies that you found to kind of overcome some of those those uh thoughts and feelings yeah i think 
personally, I still experience that a lot. Um, I've started to get over it finally. Um, and I would have never joined Pivotal if I didn't decide to get over it. And that is this idea that learning and enabling the team for the for long-term success is ultimately what's important, right? If I am working in a piece of the code base and one day I would hope that I'm not working in the same code base or the same page or the same, you know, level. And so the only way to do that is to enable someone else and to help them get there. That's like from an area of expertise and also from an area of learning, the only way I'm going to help someone work with someone and be able to emulate all the amazing things they're doing is to ask lots of questions and to be an active participant. And that means being a good pair and uh, counterintuitively being a good pair sometimes means stopping your pair and saying, Hey, can we go over this slowly? I understand this piece, but I don't understand this piece. And I'd like to understand where you're coming from in order to be able to, you know, only go over this once or only go over this twice. Yeah. So what about now moving up a level? Um, most cases when, you know, when I've talked about pair programming on, on teams, we the developers are okay to try it. Hesitation, but they're okay to try it. Managers, though, sometimes have a lot of pushback. How do you change that message when you're talking to managers to get them to understand that, hey, we're, we're not going to do this code review now. We're going to do pair programming. I'm going to take two developers who are, are making X amount of money and put them on one block of code and deliver it. How, how do you... How do you, I guess, frame the value proposition for the manager to be able to to hear the words that you need to say to get this thing to happen? Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, there's a lot of boilerplate language that you can use, but I almost feel like since it's so often used in the industry that they've heard it all and they still don't believe it because they haven't seen it. So I'll obviously try with the usual that you when you're working on your own, you end up going, running into a lot of bugs, a lot of unknowns, and it's a lot easier to have someone else kind of share that context and um, be able to pick something up when you've forgotten it, right? Like you, you went through everything, but you forgot about, you know, um, updating the readme or uh, maybe all your tests pass, so maybe you forgot to test a certain area. And it's really nice to have someone remember that and switch off with you so you don't have to do it the whole time, so you don't burn out. But ultimately, I don't think they see the value until they start trying it themselves. And I think what's the most important thing as someone who is trying to highlight those values is to make sure that we take some metrics and make sure we have some reflection and saying, hey, I would have never been able to do X, Y, and Z if it weren't for pair programming. What do you think you got out of it? And do you feel like your team is more stable? Do you feel like your team is more immune to absences? If someone needs to go on a two-week leave or if someone uh, has a random sick day that turns into you know, pneumonia and makes it, they're, they're out for a week or two, can we survive past that? And um, are you including that in the benefits that you reap? So just highlighting what's happened on the week, during the week and what it would have been like with and without pair programming. Yeah, I, th I think that makes total sense. So one of um, one of the things I remember, there, there's two things that, that come to mind from uh, from your talk. One, you just briefly kind of mentioned, and that was daily retros, or, or basically kind of reviewing 
what what went well, what didn't work, so you can continue to grow and evolve. So I, I'd love for you to chat about that. Um, but but the other part before we go there um, with that manager question was a, a lot of times um, they'll say, okay, well you can do a couple hours a day in pair programming. And and I specifically remember um, either an article or your talk that you mentioned that you shouldn't do that. So how? How do you deal with that type of response? Yeah. Um, so it's like making that transition from just a few hours of the day, right? Like a, a small interruption that you're willing to allow to happen and say, fine, we'll just make it up later versus like, yeah, like a, being all in. Yeah. It's like a pig and a chicken. Are you committed or, yeah. or, or not? <laughs> and it, it's really hard to get people to make that transition. The What I would tell them is, you know, you're not losing that much by giving a try for the full day and just give it a try. Because the thing is, if it starts working really well for your team and it's going to take a little time because you have to get to know each other and you actually have to talk to each other, you know, God forbid. Um, <laughs> and you, you just have to give it a try. And I always love using like the experiment line, right? Like it's an experiment, take some data and see how you feel at the end of the week. See if you've gotten any benefits that are worth it. And maybe pair programming isn't best full time. We do it full time, and a lot of what we do is enablement. So I often, I definitely feel like pair programming is perfect when you're trying to enable someone in a code base or with a technology. Maybe it's not perfect full time, but maybe it's worth doing an eight hour shot together. So you can't answer those questions until you run an experiment and try. Sure. So the other part was the retro. So you mentioned the importance of doing retros yes. with um, I love retros. with your pairing. Yeah, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So usually we hear about it on like a weekly basis um, through Agile, right? And the retro we usually do is what went well, what went okay, and slash like what are we curious about and what didn't go so well. Um, it's a great time to get a temperature check on how the team is doing, what they're frustrated about, and um, also to remove a lot of these assumptions that you make, right? Like, oh, maybe we've been mo moving faster than the other team. Like, and then they'll write up on the board, like, hey, we've been working on these three technology pieces that we've been really stumped on. And it's taken a lot of time. There's no documentation. Um, people who are messaging aren't responding. And it kind of brings to light a lot of that stuff that's been happening that might be building up over a weekly basis and not necessarily something to bring up over in a stand-up. And I think it's also really important to be able to make sure that you're highlighting on some of the positives as well and celebrate each other and celebrate your accomplishments. And finally, when everyone's heads down and coding, it's really hard to get updates, right? So is this code being user tested? Um, where are we going with authorization? Um, is this secure? Are we, do we have stories in the future for that? You can get a lot of that discussion and some of the longer term questions answered there. And it's a good time to do it. So we're all in the same room. And so this conversation doesn't happen with everyone individually. Now the daily retro is like a personal favorite tool that I will use forever. And that is when you're trying to get to know someone and you're pairing with them for the first time uh, to just ask them at the end of the day, like, how do you, how are you feeling? How do you like, what are you struggling with and what do you really like? Um, so that you can bring up a compromise between the two of you. And um, it doesn't mean that you necessarily, as the person who's asking, has to change. But it also gives you a chance that if they were like, I feel as though you were really quiet, be like, you're right. You know, there's something that's going on in my personal life. 
and maybe bring that in. Or, you know, you're right. Um, I've been spending a lot of time thinking, but I have no problem trying tomorrow to voice some of those thoughts so that you can hear what I'm trying to understand and trying something new the next day. Yeah, it's very cool. It's very transparent. It has a, a, a great tool for developing empathy with other people. So really understand what, what they're dealing with, whether that's professionally or personal, but bring in uh, back. I think we were talking a little bit earlier before the call about, about building effective teams and things like that, but, but being able to bring your whole self to the exactly. uh, coding challenge. So, so I like that. That's really cool. Um, okay, so I want to switch gears a little bit because I, I, as I was kind of doing research and stalking you online to find <laughs> out all this information about you to have this podcast, I kind of noticed a, um, a trend, I, I guess is the best word, in the things that you talk about and um, your presentations and your writing. And, and it tends to be around empowerment, both individuals and teams, and, and in honesty, a bit of vulnerability. Um, and in developers and, and, and bringing that whole self to, to work. Is that a fair um, impression that I got as I was kind of preparing for this podcast? Yeah. Um, I think you hit it, you know, right on the head. There is a term that I heard in one of the like one day conferences that I went to called vulnerability based trust. And I really feel like one of the best ways to build a bridge with someone else is to take that first step and be vulnerable first. And surprisingly, it's not a very core, it's not a core value that's embedded into our society, especially not here in the US, I don't think. And I could see why. I think the reason is that a lot of people want to put up that tough front. Everything is okay. I have, I've got this. And, um, I would like to say that, you know, it's easy for me. So, um, like if you're struggling with it, that's not my problem. But I think that what we need is a little bit more vulnerability and a little bit more honesty. When I was learning how to program, um, cause I was teaching myself, a lot of people told me, don't worry, programming is easy in order to encourage me and give me some hope. But in fact, it made me feel like as though I was the only one who's struggling with programming. So I really, take the extra energy out to be more vulnerable in my posts so people can see that um, if they have a conception that I think I'm killing it, you know, and I think I'm doing great and it was always this way, that that's not the truth and that I'm not afraid to speak about my struggles and to encourage others to speak to each other about their struggles too. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's talk about that for a second because I, I think um, you took a non-conventional path into programming and you're working from Pivotal, one of the major software shops um, in, in on the planet. So let's talk a bit about that. You, you started off, if I remember right, as mechanical engineer, right? Yep. That's my degree. I was doing mechanical engineering with a concentration in energy. So obviously it's engineering, so it's not like a crazy shift, but but it's cer certainly a shift. They don't teach you Python in, in Java in uh, ME, when, in an ME program generally, uh, unless you take those electives. But how did you go from being a, a professionally trained uh, mechanical engineer towards now working at Pivotal? Yeah, so the decision was kind of where I was in consulting. I was in energy consulting, working with utilities, and I was doing well, but I wasn't happy and I didn't know why. And I, I decided that I wanted to try to try out this startup thing that I've been heard, hearing about, and I wanted to be an active participant in it. And... So I realized that the only way I was going to be happy doing that is if I was on the tech side. 
And that almost always means that you have to be a programmer and uh, work in software of some kind. And I was having this argument with my mom where I was like, my mom's like, why can't you just work at Google? And I was like, mom, it doesn't work like that. (laughs) 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 And I was like, you have to learn how to program. It might take like a year or two. And um, she calls me up the next day and she's like, look, if it just takes a year or two, why don't you just do it? And I was like, oh, I never thought about it that way. (laughs) So I decided, okay, like, let me figure out what I need to do, what kind of resources I need, and let me begin my journey. And so that was a nine-month journey between quitting my job and getting my first software position at Rent the Runway. Oh, that's awesome. So what did you do? You, I mean, you had no programming experience, right? I, I had taken a class or two. So I took like AP computer science in high school. And I, um, when I was at MIT getting my mechanical engineering degree, I decided to take Python for fun which joke was totally on me because I was not prepared for the intensity of that class. And so (laughs) I realized that I had this curiosity that was fulfilled by working in Python, but I thought I would never be able to switch over and do computer science full time because I didn't think I was smart enough, honestly. Well, you've certainly proved that's not true. Um, So let's talk about write speak code. Again, one of the, you went through this big change where you were, you know, doing a job. It was good. It was a job, but it wasn't the thing that you loved. You just felt a need, a pull towards something that you really loved, uh, and that's awesome. That, that I commend you for doing that. But I, it also looks like that you're sharing that now, um, or trying to share that with other people. Uh, in particular, you're part of an organization called Write Speak Code. Can you talk a bit about the kind of goals of Write Speak Code? Yeah, Write Speak Code is all about helping women, in particular, getting getting their expertise up and getting it well-known, right? So how do you develop yourself um, beyond just the traditional job that you have? Often it is writing about code, speaking about code, and coding for open source. And so those are the three areas that we focus on because we're very action-oriented. And um, I found that when I attended and own your expertise, which is one of the workshops that they do a few years ago in New York. It was one of the most helpful workshops I've ever been through because it was where I could focus on me and had like an interactive portion where I could write down. So be like, you know, it's important to figure out what your values are. Here are some examples of values. Why don't you write down your values, write down five of them and then share them with someone else. So you're building a community and you're building your an understanding of yourself and you have something to take away from it. And so that's that's like the essence of Write Speak Code. Um, and I loved it so much that I am now on the board of it and I'm actually holding my first Own Your Expertise uh, in January for San Francisco. Um, it's kind of full circle now. Okay, now we've been talking for just uh, just under half an hour now. What, what do you want people to take away from this podcast? What message do you want to leave them with? I think that we often are kind of in our own circles and we surround ourselves with people that we've chosen and are often people who look and sound like us. And I think that one of the things that I've gotten the most value from is to reach out to people who don't look or sound like me and kind of try to get to know a, a more diverse array of people. So I would recommend for people who are in tech, um, yeah, it's really important to increase your um, visibility and it's important to increase your your technical expertise, but also to 
increase that diversity and to see other ways of approaching things, even in programming too, right? Different tools, different languages that you can use, also the different people. I think that that's an undervalued value. We've been chatting with Neha Batra of Pivotal Labs. If you like some of the lessons you heard about pair programming, be sure to look for her full-length talk from QCon San Francisco 2016 online at InfoQ.com or look for her at a Write, Speak, Code event in the Bay Area. Niha, thank you so much for joining us and sharing what you know on the InfoQ podcast. Thank you.